One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionizing the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by the gorgeous Faye Lawrence. Hey Faye, how are you? Hello Danny, I'm really very well. Faye's the founder of an amazing group called Untoxicated and it's basically a social, a sober social group for people and it runs out of Brisbane, Sydney, Gold Coast, am I missing somewhere else, Melbourne? Sometimes Gold Coast. Um, our main groups are in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne and we've got an online support group as well. Yeah, so we are hoping to expand a little bit more this year into other areas. Yeah, yeah. so that's a, it's basically for sober people to get together and socialise. Yeah, it is. What So the beauty of our model, if I say so myself, is that we, um, anyone who wants to come along for whatever reason, as long as they don't drink at the event, that's cool. And so what that means is you get people from all walks of life at different stages. Um, and it also doesn't identify you as a problem drinker by coming along. Um, yeah. And so it takes away a bit of the stigma and it starts to help um, normalise, you know, uh socializing without alcohol essentially and and having a laugh as well is it like super daggy people <laughs> totally god they're awful i wouldn't absolutely wouldn't want to hang out with them i think that's like the, the another beauty of it is like people can come along particularly if they're sort of dipping their toe in the water if they're sort of sober curious or even if they're just having a bit of a break and they can see that like other people who don't happen to have two heads, you know, other people just like them are coming along and that kind of gives it, makes it, 
makes it okay. I, I think when you come along to an intoxicated um, catch-up, you kind of go, oh, you know, a lot of these people are just like me, and so I must not be as complete as a weirdo. Or, you know, it sort of normalises the whole thing. And, yeah, I think that's one of the good things about it. It's so it's so great, and I'll definitely post everything about it in the show notes as well. Because I have a lot of people contact me and say, I actually had someone recently in Brisbane saying, I don't know who, to, you know, where are my people? Where is my tribe at? So it's yeah. a massive, massive part because if you, if for example, you are a problem drinker, um, like I absolutely was, it's an intrinsic part of your identity, and so you're kind of like really like what the freak do I do then like my whole life is going to be sort of turned on its head if I if I have to stop drinking and for me personally that was like a massive hurdle and deterrent for me in actually giving up and I think that's why you know as a lot of us do it went on for so long of like no I'm the rebel I'm the party girl I'm the one who goes out clubbing I'm the one who does you know blah Mm. what is life going to look like on the other side of that I think I think to be able to find other people that you can socialise with so that you're not isolated. But interestingly, I was looking into the research recently as well, and it turns out that people who are non-drinkers not in recovery also experience that same sense of pressure and isolation, socialised isolation and ostracism and all of those things. So it's not just people who have shifted from being big, you know, partiers or big drinkers. It's also people who, you know, I guess for religious reasons or health reasons or any other reasons, feel that same sense of pressure and othering. And so that's why it's really, really important for people. I think it's like a fundamental human need to connect and to belong um, and to have a laugh. Christ, life's too short. Like you've got, you got to be able to have a bit of fun as well. You know, I think that's really important for people to be able to have somewhere to do that when they're trying to sustain behavioural change. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just part of it too. It's just like you say, it's that feel that everyone needs to feel like they belong somewhere. And so sometimes if you are ostracised from your group, really great to be able to have someone, even if it's one person to connect to, but a group, fantastic. I just think that's awesome. And what what invariably happens, I mean, you're going to come along and you're going to find, okay, there's some people on my wavelength and there's lots of people that probably I wouldn't socialise with outside of this as well. It's the same, you know, what if you if you went to a photography meetup or you went to a, you know, fitness meetup or something. But what happens eventually is that people then make friendships and branch off and do their own thing and then come back and connect to intoxicated, you know, probably less regularly, but it enables them to to find those friendships and their tribe um mm. and then and then go, go wherever they want to go after that does anyone like start dating <laughs> well funnily enough funny you should mention it Kelly, because i actually did a um so most of our meetups are about 10 or 20 people they're, they're generally kept quite small but last year i did do a bigger event um which was a sober and sober curious singles night oh. and um i actually met my partner there <laughs> <laughs> My now uh, partner. You were just doing it for the hookup. I know. That's what everyone says. And I truly wasn't. I was busy working all night. I was hosting, emceeing and all the rest of it. And um, it, we didn't start dating until about six months later. But, <laughs> yeah, it's, that's, so there are quite a lot of people who are um, – dating's a whole other thing. Dating's a whole other kettle of fish um, in, in sobriety. Um, 
a lot of people find it quite challenging to navigate. But yeah, yes. Just- well, one of the people in, I just hosted a three-month challenge, coached yeah. about 30 people through a three-month sober challenge starting in January. And one of the women started dating someone right in the middle of it. Okay. And it was really interesting. It's just like she was just feeling a sin, you know, not on everything, of course, but on the first date and how that was sober. And then the second day, and now they're in a relationship, but I can't imagine yeah. like, you know, to do that sober, oh, especially honestly. like having a first shag, not drunk. Oh, wow. It's ter- honestly <laughs> terrifying. You feel like you're in high school again. And, yes. and you, you know, like what they say about, you know, you, you are at the emotional maturity the, at the age where you started started drinking yes. so for me that was like 14 or 15 yes, and I was like and it felt like being in high school you were kind of like god how do I do this because I'd never done and as for the sober shag oh my god <laughs> <laughs> it's quite yeah it's awkward as hell um but I think the thing that I liked about the sober dating was that you are showing up as yourself yeah um, you are much more vulnerable, but it means that you can spot red flags more quickly. It's it's a more authentic way of doing it, definitely, even if it is terrifying. Oh, my God, I cannot imagine. I'm just, yeah, I, I can imagine it would be terrifying. Yeah. But, you know, everything that you delve into sober for the first time is a little terrifying, even just hanging out with people that you don't know, strangers for the first time sober can be yeah. quite challenging because such an icebreaker, isn't it, often alcohol until you make a dick of yourself? Absolutely. I think one of the things that I've noticed um, quite quite a lot since I stopped drinking is that most people who are problem drinkers do have quite have high levels of anxiety. This is an anecdotal observation. I'm not, there's no scientific basis here, but I do think they have quite high levels of anxiety in particular social anxiety Mm. um and you know as we know it just takes the edge off and it and and you you know it stops the internal chatter and critic and all the rest of it at least temporarily so i i that's why we keep our meetups quite small as well so that it's less Mm. daunting for people to show up because it's really brave to do that without booze I I think oh my god totally so just quickly uh, just another question on that if someone did want to join and we'll have the links in the show notes and I'll post stuff as well on my Instagram but it's it's a free service is that right because you're a not-for-profit yeah we're a not-for-profit without any funding Yeah, we've yeah. only just become a not-for-profit. So basically, look, this just started out as a labour of love for me, and it has been for the past two years. And, and we've recently got, um, we've recently um, become a registered charity. But yeah, everything we do is for free. There's a small two dollar fifty charge for um, meetups, um, which would predominantly stop people dropping out at the last minute. Um, just mm. a little bit of a psychological buy-in. But yeah, so so basically people go to um, their website, which is intoxicated.com.au, and there's links to everything from there. And, yeah, we, we have them pretty much, uh, well, it depends which city you're in, but most cities we have them every week. Um, in Brisbane, we have them multiple times a week. And, yeah, there's usually, you know, loads of, loads of things going on, all, all sorts of different things. We've got a um, trip to Brun- the Brunswick Cases Distillery, that pub, Boothbury pub in Melbourne that's just opened up. We've got that coming yeah. up. We've awesome. got rock, rock climbing. We've got meals. We've got movies. We've got just about everything you can kind of think of really so 
Yeah, it's it's pretty That's good. It's just so cool. What a great thing to do. Good on you. I just think so, so cool. It must be a lot of work. It is, yeah. I do love it, though. Good on you. I just think it's awesome. So Thank let's you. talk about your your journey with alcohol. When did you start sure. drinking? Um, I started drinking when I was about sort of 13, 14. Um, I grew up in a household where, you know, there was a lot of boozing going on. I've got alcoholism on both sides of my family, um, including, you know, people who've, who've died, um, from excessive alcohol use. Uh, we were also a sort of fairly liberal minded household. So I was probably about 11 before or 10, sorry, I, I would say before I realized that like, smoking weed was illegal because we always grew it in the back garden. Um, and so my parents were hippies. I, I can remember the first time I got really smashed. Um, I was probably about 13 and, you know, I dabbled a bit before then, but I just remember it turning off my head. And I can remember that feeling of like comfort and ease coming over me. And that was it. You were in. That that was it for the next 30 years. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I just, I continued um, then with, with drugs and alcohol. Um, Alcohol was always more my thing. Drugs was always sort of a recreational. I could take it or leave it really. Um, and I'd have long periods where I didn't really do do much on that front, but the alcohol remained. And then, you know, when I came to Australia in 2000, um, I was married with two small children and, and we separated in 2001. And then I found myself basically a single parent in Australia. I couldn't return to the UK. Um, so I knew I had, you know, many, many years ahead and I was basically here with, with a couple of small children working full time as a single parent and with no support network. And the stress was just, you know, the stress. And so the weekends that I didn't have the children every other weekend, I'd just obliterate myself from Friday to Sunday, like the whole weekend would just be an absolute write off. And then, you know, it just continued over the years. And, yeah, I mean, I I think I knew sort of within myself that eventually one day I was going to have to give up because it it just really wasn't good for me. It really was not good for me. But I think the thing is that you just don't know how to do life without it. I'd, I'd never known as an adult any way of operating in the world I didn't know how to deal with stress I didn't know how to have a laugh I didn't know how to connect with people socially I didn't know how to deal with celebration reward any of those sorts of things without booze and um, the thought of trying to do that was honestly just abject terror and also Mm. I think all the things that were going to come up that yeah. you have to now deal with. Yeah. <laughs> You're totally. like, I don't want to. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's such a band-aid, isn't it? So, yeah. okay, so let's go back a little bit. So what got you to the point where you just realised that, okay, I can't do this anymore? I think there were a couple of things. I uh, basically had a relationship. I, I was dating this guy and we, we had moved in together and we were both, massive drinkers and then that relationship broke down and 
I'd always had sort of safeguards in place, I suppose. And by that, I mean like either children living at home or going out to work during the day. So what that meant was, you know, there's only so much you can, I was still going out and smashing it and going to work with hangovers and all the rest of it, but it does limit the amount. But what was happening because I was now working from home, I was self-employed and my kids had left home and I was living by myself after the relationship breakdown. And so the drinking just escalated and it was starting earlier and I was just starting to lose control. I, I mean, with the limited amount of control that I already that I had at that point, or prior to that, and it just—it was almost like, let's see how far I can push, <laughs> how far I can push it. But I just started. Yeah, I mean, I would be drinking in the morning. I'd wake up if there was any booze left from the night before I'd probably have it if it was left in a wine glass or something or I'd have a Valium Um, and then uh, I would then start drinking sort of mid-morning I'd alternate the bottle shops as a lot of people do Um, I would have tactics so that I didn't get smashed really really early because I was still working at that point and then I would you know ramp it up at sort of three o'clock I would have had like I'd try and eke out a few beers six beers and then I'd I would only ever buy a bottle at a time because I'd still be trying to control to some degree. But then I'd go out and get another one. So I'd, I'd probably be knocking off like six beers and then a couple of bottles of wine at that point. And I just I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. I remember sitting out on my deck crying, just not wanting to drink. But I, I couldn't stop. I, I just didn't even want the drink. It, was, it wasn't even fun anymore. I wasn't enjoying it. There was nothing, you know, nothing that I was enjoying about it. Um, and I was in a lot of emotional pain, you know, like years and decades of stuff that I hadn't dealt with. Yeah, that's that's how I ended up, basically. That was my rock bottom, really. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, was it just a morning that you woke up and said, that's it, enough's enough? And, and what, how did you go about it? Because it sounds like like that's that's a serious drinking problem. So how, how did you go about <laughs> yeah, it? it was. You weren't I mean, fucking I was about. Only at, no, I wasn't fucking about. I really wasn't. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, I've been a high-functioning drink, high drinker for a long time. I was studying, working full-time. I'd always been quite a high achiever. I was, you know, a career, fairly career minded I was um you know I've kept it all together but I was I was you know pissed every night basically and I was rocking up to work hungover but I would still always be able to maintain it so but it was really those last six months where things really did deteriorate and went downhill quite quickly I've been in therapy for about four years and my I went to see my therapist and she kind of gave me permission I suppose because she basically said look you're you're a mess you need to you need to go and get some additional help and um, that's I basically presented to hospital emergency the next morning and then they they made a they made a an appointment for me to um to go into inpatient detox 10 days later so I was like great I've got 10 days I can absolutely <laughs> I've got 10 days I can smash it for the next 10 days 
I don't have to give up straight away. I've got another 10 days up my sleeve. That was the mindset at the time. And um, mm. yeah, so I did have another 10 days. I smashed it. And then I, I went into hospital. I did inpatient detox and I came out and I haven't touched a drop since. Wow. So how was that? Like going into, oh and why did you choose that? I chose it because it was, I I knew I need, needed something over and above just like going into going to therapy or something like that. I, I, I needed I needed higher intervention. I, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. I knew I needed someone to sort of take the reins for a little bit. Um, and that was really a very, oh, it was quite a humbling and humiliating experience. It was ultimately empowering, obviously, but at the time I was like, how the fuck did I get here mm. you know like it was just uh, this isn't how I pictured my life you know mm. um and uh, you know because at that point I was I wouldn't say I was a sorry I was <laughs> suicidal in that I didn't care if I lived or died and I <laughs> it sounds quite depressing doesn't it but you know it was just the mm. hopelessness of it all it was the hopelessness of it all it was just and and I think like three decades worth or more of emotional pain that needed to come out and be addressed and mm. I didn't want to do it mm. um you know and then I since uh, basically um a therapist sort of said to me they about about the CPTSD stuff and and now a lot of that makes sense um mm. the, the pain was too much to to feel but when I went actually into hospital I was like whoa this is actually insane <laughs> it was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest oh, um yeah. yeah you're in there there was like sex workers and 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 bikies and you know people have been court ordered because it was drugs and alcohol um, and there's only 16 beds in the whole of Queensland um, at this place uh, uh, called Hads. And also when I was in there, because I just finished a, a side degree in psychology, ironically, it's true what they say about people who study psych. Um, <laughs> they are all fucked up. But I could see the stats in the hospital of like how frequently people come back into this particular unit it was extremely high and I was like no that is not going to be me that this is it this is the one and only time I'm not coming back here um but it was quite a good leveler in many respects because it's like you're all in there you're all addicts of one flavor or another and no one's better than anyone else you know there was a police place woman in there teacher uh, you know all walks of life and it just really helped drive home like this stuff doesn't discriminate no one's immune so it was you know it really was I, I sort of, I'm not sure whether the making of me is the right word but it was a very necessary experience yeah wow what an experience had you tried to quit many times before yeah yeah, I had. I was first in alcohol counselling in 2001. Yeah, and I'd been on naltrexone, I'd been on Camperol, I'd been on, you know, I'd been in and out of therapy. I'd, you know, I'd been to AA a few times. I'd walk in, I'd never go back. And it was always on the back of a very, 
you know, an awful episode that we all have where you're completely out of control or you've done something awful or you've, you know, that you're full of shame and regret and self-loathing and you go, that's it, I'm, that's it, I've had enough. And then, you know, by the weekend you're back on it again. Um, <laughs> because, because the denial is so strong. It's like, no, I've got my shit together, I've got a mortgage. No, I'm not like these other people. You know, I've got a job. I'm bringing up two kids. No. And because you surround yourself with other people like you, Mm. it just normalises it. And so you're like, no, everyone does this. No, God, you've always been an over-warrior. No, look, this is fine. It was just a one-up. Everyone, you know, stuffs up and makes a mistake. No, no, for the most part, you're fine. And I was able to keep myself in denial for a long, long time. You know, it's it's true what they say. You're ready when you're ready. Yeah. I wasn't ready for the other, you know, prior, but I'd been basically trying for about 20 years to, on and off, to, to stop or cut back. And I think the reality is I just didn't want to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how long, how long ago was that? That was November 2017, so it's three, three and a bit years Wow, good on you! So amazing. Thanks. So Thanks. I could, as you're saying, the re, the return rate is quite high yeah, um, to go to one of those centres. So talk us through. So you've come out, you've done your detox, yeah, which sounds like would have been fairly intense. And then what? What happens? You, they give you they say off you trot. Here you go. See you later. Well, a lot of people go to rehab. I actually didn't realise that I could have actually gone to rehab. Oh. <laughs> I was too all over the place at the time. If you've got private health, you can go to rehab. Um, and I did have private health, but I'm glad I did the option that I did because it was much more hardcore. And like I say, it was more like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So it was, you're mixing with some pretty, pretty, you know, all walks of life. It's it's pretty gross because the toilets and everything. And you can't have technology. You're locked in. Um, you're free to go whenever you want, but you can't come back in. Those spaces are like gold. And so it's 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 probably a bit more a bit less pleasant, shall we say, than going to rehab. Um, and mm. you don't get much psychoeducation in inpatient detox. It's purely for the medical withdrawal. Um, and then lots of people go on to, to rehab, as I said. But no, I just came home and I I was on on um, medication to stop the cravings, and I just had to learn how to how to walk again. I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to be in the world without booze. It was like starting from scratch almost. Yeah, it was It was a really interesting, difficult and very enjoyable in that the growth that you experience quite quickly in in things you're able to do is 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 a real gift that's one of the biggest gifts of sobriety it continues to be is the growth yeah but yeah as you know Danny like the the brutal the brutal first few months is yeah it's it's not easy no I just utilized every support that I could get my hands on to get through so what what were some of those that you did I was in a lot of online support groups which I found really, really helpful. And that's why I started the Untoxicated one because um, once I'd sort of stabilised out about a year, year, 18 months later, I started the Untox one because there weren't any Australian ones. Mm. Um, the ones I was in were all UK and um, US. So I found those really, really helpful. 
I used to go to, I did a little bit of AA in the beginning, which I found really, really helpful. Um, I'm not biggest fan of AA, I've got to admit, but there was, it, there was definitely something useful in being around other people who understood and mm. being able to go and vent and go, this isn't fucking fair. You know, it's a Friday night and everyone else is out and, because uh, <laughs> you get a lot of, I mean, in the beginning, you're absolutely shattered for a start, but you have a lot of emotion coming up and, it's that it's like the five stages of grief, you know, the Cooper Ross model where you're going through that those phases of like, I don't want to accept this. Oh shit, I have to. Like I know I have to, but I'm pissed off about it. <laughs> so mm. it's it's I I just it was probably the first time in my life where I really had to start looking after myself and really had to start reframing the way that I saw things. Um, and one of the things that I vowed to myself when I came out of the hospital was to focus on what I was gaining, not on what I was losing, yeah. which was a really helpful strategy. And also the other thing is, sure, you can have a drink. I mean, you can have a drink if you want. No one's stopping you. You're an adult, but you know where it's going to end up. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's that's the hard thing. And so for so many people, they get tricked into when alcohol, I call it the sneaky bitch, when the sneaky bitch is in your ear saying, just have one, just have one. How did you deal with the sneaky bitch when she was saying that to you? Because I'm sure she would have been in your ear a lot at the start. Oh, God, there was, I graduated. So I, I my mum came over, which, you know, is is having your parents come to stay when you've just come out of hospital <laughs> is not ideal. But anyway, it was planned before and she came over from Cyprus where she lives, which is in Europe. But we met in Melbourne for my graduation and my whole graduation ceremony. So this was about a month after I'd, I'd come out of hospital. I was like, alcohol was the only thing on my mind. I, I, I didn't, really? it was just, it just felt so unfair that it taken me so long to get this degree. And yet I couldn't have a glass of champagne afterwards. And that was a real, real massive test for me because I, but I was like, well, we could order a bottle between the two of us. And, you know, it was that self-talk that you constantly have where you're negotiating with yourself. I yeah. think the difference for me this time with going into hospital was it made it real. It made it real and it made me realise how far I'd slipped out of control. And for me, I had to have, a, and I'm not a black and white thinker at all. I'm all about life. is all the shades of grey. Nothing's, everything's nuanced. But for this, I had to be, it's a no. It's just an absolute no. It's just, there's no room for negotiation. There's no room for internal, you know, um, well, you deserve or, oh, you've done such a great job or, oh, well, just one won't hurt. I just had to have, it had to be just hard and fast. And I think also at that point, you know, step one is, and I didn't work the steps, that you're powerless over alcohol. I think I had actually come to the realisation that I was. Um, yeah. and, I, and, and that, as someone who's got a little bit of a control freak tendency, was, you know, quite hard to admit to myself. I think it's the first step, isn't it? Like I said, I didn't do AA either, but I think no. that's such a... That is the most one of the most important steps I could imagine is just admitting it. Okay, I am actually powerless. This I can't control this. 
my life's uh, becoming uh, unmanageable. Yeah, I did admit to myself that I was powerless over alcohol. I knew that when I picked up a drink that I didn't know where that was going to end up. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was it. I, I just, I had to. It was, I didn't want to, I didn't want to end up dead in a gutter or something. Yeah, well, it, I mean, I had a similar thing where my alcohol problem wasn't near as bad as yours. You definitely, mm. you out-trashed my trash bag. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I knew for me, it was, for me, it was the 12 months that I took off initially, but mm. I knew, I just knew I did not want to go back to that. So for me, it was like you, an absolute no, just, there was no questions about it. I'm not having a fucking drink. There's no, I'm going to have one. I didn't even yeah. have a sip, not a smell, nothing. No. Because I think once you've made that really, you flick the switch in your mind. Yeah. And again, it's, yeah, it's just saying, no, it's, this is not happening. I'm not doing it. And I think for anyone out there that's even taking a short amount of time off, like with the people I've just taken through this three-month challenge, no, it's not happening, not not in this time frame, absolutely not. And then often you get to the end of that time frame too, and then you'll say, "Let's keep going with it." Especially if you have fucked up a lot in the past, and you think, "I don't want to go back to that." So yes, yeah. and and that's the thing is like, I mean, you're ready when you're ready. If giving up is something that you want to do, I tried FebFast three times, and I'd never succeeded. So I knew that like, if I gave myself any wiggle room or any any way to go with this. I would talk myself out, you know, I would, the the times when I'd tried before to either cut back or, you know, all the tactics that we use, like putting ice in the wine or putting soda water or vodka, lime and soda, oh, you, yeah, could, you know, all the things, um, that the strategies that we try and implement to, to not drink as much, I would always find a wiggle way. And so this time it had to be, it had to be absolutely all or nothing for me personally, because I would always talk myself out of it every single time. Absolutely. I think you get to know that with experience. So for myself, I tried so many times to quit previously and then always that the sneaky bitch saying, I'll just have one. You'll be right. Just who who can have one? Where's the fun in one? Who are are those people? Where where is the fun in one? Like whoever drank to have one? I I just couldn't. Turns out there are actually people that do. (laughs) Yeah, there is. Funny enough. But I used to think it was so boring, those people. But they're they're quite switched on, those people. But you know. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yes, yeah, so you know with experience, it's like, 
how many times I tell myself I'll just become a one person drinker, a one drink, one, one drink person. And it just never worked. It never fucking worked. It never, it never worked. And that's also one of the things that I found has been so much better about making a firm decision because the amount of mental energy that you you use, because I'd be like, no, I'm not going to drink tonight because I overdid it last night. Or even if I didn't, you know, completely overdo it, even if I'd only had like a bottle the night before, I'd be like, no, I'm going to have a night off tonight. And then in the morning, I'd be thinking about it. I'd be at work and I'd be thinking about it. Well, it has been quite a stressful day. Oh, well, someone's popping over. And oh, well. And so you're constantly, I, for me, I was anyway. And this was every day, would be thinking about, um, you know, what's the, someone wrote that book, Tired of Thinking About Drinking, I think it was. And that's exactly it. Your mental space is so taken up by the thought of consuming alcohol or the trying to not consume alcohol or trying to find some conditions at which consuming alcohol is acceptable to something you've told yourself earlier about you know not overdoing it or whatever that to take that away especially once you're past early sobriety frees up a lot of mental space does doesn't it Mm. yeah so when did it start to get easier for you oh god I'm trying to remember back now to the early days I think the first sort of three months you just wiped out and you're dealing with a lot. I'd say one, I'd say quite quickly though, I was noticing how much I was gaining. And I would say that the wrangling over the Friday nights, the Friday nights I still found difficult, I would say for at least six months. Um, because it was, you know, the whole thing of like, this isn't fair. I think it took. A good six to 12 months before the Friday nights were were okay, and now I don't even think about it. I think for me the hardest thing has been the dealing with your emotions. So once you've actually got used to the alcohol being out of your system and you've started to sort of rewire those neural pathways around your use of alcohol in certain situations, it's the ability to being able to sit with your feelings and that, I think is 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 an ongoing that's an ongoing <laughs> that's an ongoing you know work in progress I think about how to be able to do that and and how to and and look it's not easy is it no that's one of the biggest things I think it's I, I totally agree it's that first three months it's all kind of like uh, uh, and and getting used to it and and figuring out new ways to navigate your life and then comes the, okay, now we're sitting, now we're getting to know ourselves, now the stuff's coming up. And yeah. I've just read, have you read In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate? I've I've got it, I've been, yeah, I've got it on audiobook for um, oh. about half the way through. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, I love him. I love Gabor Mate. Yeah. Isn't he just, oh, he's just incredible. But how he talks about, you know, alcohol being a Band-Aid and a very useful one or whatever your drug or whatever your addiction is, it serves a purpose until it doesn't. Basically, he just says that unless those things are addressed, that you'll either go back to that addiction or flick it over to another addiction. Just definitely as part of it is being very gentle and kind on yourself, but also seeking out some help with those underlying issues that are there in the first place, often a childhood trauma um, that needs to be dealt with, not even just childhood trauma, just trauma in general or anything that's really, you know, there's an emotional disturbance there that needs to be settled in order for you to heal yeah, absolutely, 100%. I'm a firm believer in, in, in Gabor's approach to addiction. I think, um, you know, as 
much more um, learnings are coming to light about trauma and a lot more understanding about it. Um, I think, yeah, exactly like you say, Danny, whether it's childhood trauma or whether it's, you know, through DV or through other life experiences that have happened to you. I think the first three months I was sort of in the pink cloud um, and I was like, wow, you know, this is difficult, but wow, look, this is so great. And look how much weight I'm losing and blah, 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 blah. And then you're like, whoa, where's, where did this bit come from? Um, which is the realisation that you've been try, probably trying to avoid for a long time by using the alcohol, which is having to deal with all the all the things that come up. And I'd been in therapy for on and off for quite a long time anyway, and I think that gave me a little bit of foundation. Mm. But one thing that I became really quite evident with me was like how much I'd essentially been hurting myself. Yeah, You know, I'd been hurting myself with alcohol. It was a form of self-abuse. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it was in the same way as cutting yourself or any of those, you know, eating disorders, which I'd also had as well. But earlier on, I'd had a lot of things in my life that had basically been about hurting myself. Mm. And no amount of therapy is going to cut through when you're still doing the behaviors every day that hurt you and so then you've got shame about that as well the shame is I'd I'd had such a lot of shame in my life as well and you know that's where I think a lot of the the social anxiety and 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 all of that came from was like I the shame and guilt was so strong. And I think some of that's intergenerational as well in my family. But to be not entirely free from that, but to suddenly start liking yourself and suddenly start realising that you're actually an okay person and that you are worthy of care in the way that you give care to other people was just like, whoa, mind blown, because you're, you're, acting in ways you're acting in integrity you're acting in ways rather than just saying it because I'd always been like what is this self-love how the hell do you do this what like I can't even get my head around this I hated myself you know really Mm. underneath it all and then oh right it's actually about treating yourself with a little bit of respect and actually having your own back and making the tough decisions that aren't easy and having boundaries and like not constantly writing yourself off and freaking ending up at home at 2am with no idea of the last five hours you know and all those sorts of things it if you consistently treat yourself with some level of care and respect that's going to show up in how you feel about yourself and that's been such a huge realization and a massive gift that has been the biggest gift for me in sobriety is actually learning to like myself a bit I agree (laughs) I'm not I don't know if I'm necessarily at the self-love stage yet but you know I'm all right (laughs) it's definitely yeah totally I just think it's such a huge part of it is that I don't often see someone that's still on a on a, a really meaningful sobriety journey. And there's a difference between sobriety, as Gabor says, difference between sobriety and abstinence. So abstinence, you know, just sort of grinning and bearing it and fuck, 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 and oh, shit, fuck, shit, fuck, you know, why, you know, feeling sorry for yourself. But the sobriety is very different and that, that's a journey. It's a healing process that has to happen. And part of that is loving yourself. It just has to happen. And I think unless that is addressed, then again, just like, 
Gabor says, that, that will deflect onto something else. It doesn't mean, this is one thing I struggled with for a long time, is that I didn't want to wear the hat of the victim. Mm. I, I can't stand that victim mentality. And I always thought, that's not for me, that's not for me. And when my very good friend of mine, she's a trauma therapist, Jeannie, mm. said, she suggested I read the Pete Walker complex PTSD, yeah. Surviving to Thriving. And I was reading it just going, oh, oh, my God, that's me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, that's me. Oh, what? Mm. that's why I act like that. But mm. it's, it's, not, it's not having to wear the victim hat either. It's actually really empowering to go, wow, right, now I see. Now I can get a, a better uh, realisation of why I'm acting in this way or why I choose self-abandonment all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's very common as well in people who are, trauma survivors for want of a better word is to downplay your experience oh it wasn't that bad no you know I've got nothing to complain about at least I was you know fed and I was you know whatever whatever your circumstances were there's other people who have it a lot worse than me and I hadn't even thought about the CPTSD until this therapist said to me you know I think you've got CPTSD and I was like what the hell no that's for people who are you know like sexually abused and and blah 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 and then it was there's been so many light bulbs going off and so much more clarity gained since I stopped drinking as to why I why I (laughs) why I am the way I am because for a long time I was like well, I know I'm fucked up, but I don't really, I, like, I know there was, there's been a lot of dysfunction in my life, um, but, you know, I, can't, I couldn't sort of really see things clearly, whereas now I'm much more, okay, yeah. But I, it's interesting what you say about the victim thing, because I think that actually once you, once, you, once you do get sober, you do start taking responsibility for much more. I was a lot more of a victim when I was drinking. It was other people's fault. I couldn't say sorry. Oh, yeah. I had to be right. I, I couldn't bear to be, you know, wrong and all of those things. And now I'm like, oh, God, yeah. Yes, You're I right. did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you, and that's why I love hanging out with people who who don't drink or but definitely people in recovery because they've got so much more self-awareness and they're so much more committed to growth and self-actualization that it's just it's just really interesting. It's really great to see other people on that same trajectory. Oh, my God, I know. That's why I even love doing this this challenge because everyone on the challenge that went really well through it, they really got into that. And, you know, just so beautiful to be around a whole group of people. Like, And I can imagine you have the same thing with your groups that, yeah, you, you are surrounded by people that are delving into into life and, and wanting to improve themselves. My One of my best friends from... We've known each other since primary school. She's been on this podcast twice. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, her name's Lyndall and she's actually doing the the 12 steps and it's just so transformed her and we're just constantly on the phone. She was she was not one to do emotions or anything like that and now we're just constantly on the phone. Like she'll be like reading this amazing quote or reading some Wayne Dyer stuff and we're just always on at each other about different ways of thinking or different ways of looking at things and it's such an exciting part of a friendship too when you start, when you've known someone all your mm. life too and you start to go even deeper and it doesn't mm. have to have been someone that you've known all your life either but just, yeah, those people that are really more tapped in and you're like, yes, and that's sort of, that's kind of all I can kind of tolerate these days too. I don't have yeah. time for 
all the other bullshit. And you can like, see when people are drinking oh, a lot, like you say, it's like, oh, fuck. Can't be it's a barrier to intimacy. It's a barrier to yes. intimacy. That's ultimately what it is. It's fear of being seen. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> yes. For whatever reason, because you think you're not good enough or because you, you know, whatever it is, you're probably not even aware of it. And, and I, you know, I, I bet you most people who are problem drinkers are, are insecurely attached or they've got, you know, they've got attachment trauma because it's a way of keeping people at arm's length. Oh, my God. I just want to jump through the screen and kiss you on the face because, <laughs> oh, that, I just totally agree. Yeah, it's a fear of mm. being seen. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you can then connect with people in a much more legitimate and real and authentic and, you know, gritty way once alcohol's out of the equation. And I think that's why a lot of people over time have little tolerance for, you know, the same sort of environments that they used to. Like, yeah, sure, I can go to a pub if I want to. I mean, that wouldn't bother me. But do I want to? No, because it's loud, everyone's shouting, there's no real connection there. Nah, I'd rather go and have you know, to go out to dinner with four close people. And I always thought I was the person, I was having a conversation with a mate today about this actually, because he, he had exposed himself to an environment and gone, oh, I really didn't, didn't enjoy that. Um, and I always used to thought I loved the noise and I loved the, the loads of people and I loved the, you know, and now I find it actually quite overstimulating. I find sensory overload. I'm like, nah, I'm really not. I'd rather be, you know, going to the movies or or just doing something a lot more low key. But at the time, I loved the glamour of it, or what I thought was the glamour and the rebelliousness and the being yeah. being seen, which of course yeah. is being seen in a different way. Um, yes. And yeah, I think um, it's definitely a lot more authentic in sobriety. And the other thing is the comfort zones. You would see this in your challenge, Danny, is like the willingness of people as well to embrace discomfort and to do things that they probably haven't done before. And that's where they start to, you know, the cocoon turns into a butterfly. It's really amazing, incredible to see people in my group where they're suddenly branching out in ways that they haven't done and to you know, take on new things in life. And I yeah, I love, love seeing it. Me too. And when you are faced with those hard things that come up, you realise that you can do it. You're like, we can do hard things. We could do hard things, quote Glenn <laughs> Doyle, please. Yes. Yes. I was actually saying this to my husband the other day because so my dad and I are extremely close mm. and he got diagnosed with lung cancer, small cell lung cancer two years ago and was given three months to live. Mm. And we went through this rigorous whole journey with him, getting him on the special diet and cannabis oil and all these things. And he went into a prolonged remission. So he's mm. been great for two years, playing golf, fishing, having a great time. And then boom, in the last few months, it's back. The cancer's come <sighs> back and it's gone to his brain. It's gone to his liver. Oh it's it's sort of everywhere and he's not got long. So that's why when Blues Fest cancelled on the weekend, I said, Ash, let's go, let's get to Victoria as soon as possible so I can hang yeah. out with my dad. But I was so grief-stricken. There was three days there that I just cried and cried and I didn't think of drinking. No. Some part of me wanted to kind of just go to sleep or something. I just wanted to mm. turn it off. But I was, I just had to be super present and I just let myself go through the whole process. So yeah. even like focusing on where it hurt in my body, like, you know, the ache and the the upset and just dealing with it and just lying in bed and just letting it all process. 
Yeah. And I remember saying to Ash, we were lying there and I just kept saying, I can do hard things, I can do hard things. And, you know, and I came out of it, you know, I've come down here now and I'm going to see Dad and I feel, you know, I'm not certainly not okay about it, but I feel mm. so much clearer and I have a better understanding and more acceptance. You know, three or four years ago, I just would have absolutely obliterated myself and been on yeah. the phone crying to all my siblings. And now, you know, I feel like we're really united on this and we can deal with it and it's going to be really shit. There's no two yeah. ways about it, but I'm going to front it head on. And I'm going to be brave. You know, I've always been a real big baby about things, especially things around my dad. Cause I just, he's been my rock through my whole life when my mum was very up and down with her addiction, you know, like to have that rock not there anymore. I'm like, how, how do I, how am I going to navigate through life? But that's growing up, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and I think that when you talk there, I'm sorry to hear about your dad, um, yeah, by the way, you. as well, that is a real, that's a really, that is a tough one. I mm. think for anyone to, to navigate the loss of a parent, um, but I think being able to process and integrate the emotion and the feelings is really critical to being able to, like my, my stepdad, um, who was like my, my dad for 30 years, he passed away not last year, the year before, and also my, one of my best friends as well um, was cancer mm. and it was really quick. It was she was my longest standing friend in Australia and she literally was dead within, you know, about six weeks. To be able to face those emotions and let yourself cry when you needed to cry rather than trooping on and, to, you know, rail against the injustices of life and all the things that mm. you do. Mm. And, you know, this isn't fucking fair and I didn't get enough time and remembering the good bits and all of that. For me, it helped me come to terms with it a lot quicker than yes. had I been drinking you know, you still have times where you're sad about it, but had I been drinking, I'd probably still be a mess now, two years later after the after the event when I when I thought about it, because I wouldn't have dealt with it in a way that was was healthy. So yeah, yeah we, we can do hard things. Yeah, we can. We absolutely can. And that's what we're made to do, you know, we're and this is it is life, you know, we have to deal with things and it makes you grow as a person. It's the really good does. and the ugly. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> the is. highs are still really, really great, and the joy and the small things in day to day life that you just oh, you know, that that make you happy to be alive. And then you go, oh, there's the shit bits. Oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's the shit bits. Yeah. But I've got to deal with those too. And, and man- uh, maintaining a state of gratitude too. You know, I always bang on in this podcast about a gratitude practice, okay. which is what got me going through the start of it as well, through yeah. the start of my sobriety journey. And to, because that's so deep in me now, you know, I can feel grateful for things, even those big hard things, you know, okay, I, feel, I can feel grateful for this because because I can be present or because I can mm. be really uh, mindful and whatever it is when I'm dealing with my dad, you know, I can really enjoy every single moment and remember it. Oh my yes. God. And you can show your kids as well a healthy way of coping with life's adversities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, moving on. So when you got to the point, so see for me early on, I, I knew when I was resenting my decision to quit alcohol the first few weeks, it was only the first few weeks, I thought, this is shit. You know, I was feeling sorry for myself and I was a bit mopey. And then I thought, no, no, I can't do this because that's going to be 12 months of absolute hell. So I I need to just 
I need to reframe. And that's one thing Gabor talks about as well, the reframing of alcohol. So realizing, okay, yep, this is no good for me anymore. And then to anyone listening, I'd say to fast track the whole process is to really work on reframing how you think about it. So seeing it as a gift rather than something you're missing out on. Absolutely. But also I think taking that sense of curiosity, which is like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to go to this event and I'm just going to see how I feel. And I'm just going to actually tune in and not put any judgment on it prior to going or, you know, whatever it is in life, um, whatever, even if it's something simple, like how do I feel about, you know, seeing these particular friends or how do I feel about doing this particular work or what, what anything that it is in your life. I found that actually putting that sense of curiosity on it, like, well, I don't really know, because it is like learning to start from scratch. And then Mm. you kind of sort of start learning to trust your own feelings um, and going, oh, well, that was mm, not sure I kind of fit in that pub environment anymore or not sure I kind of some of those friendships feel icky to me now or you know, this work isn't aligned with how I feel, I feel like showing up in the world or what, you know, whatever it is, but being able to, to go into things with that sense of curiosity or your relationships, your, all your relationships shift. Um, But also, you know, about the day to day. Oh, right. I noticed at like five o'clock, I really, really want a glass of wine. Um, because that's the time that I would be getting home from work and I'd be, you know, necking my first bottle. Um, those sorts of things as well. So, okay, I can see that that's something that I'm, I'm sort of, you know, in high anxiety about or expectation about, okay, so I'm going to go and do something else. I'm going to make sure at five o'clock every day I go out for a walk or I, you know, whatever it might be. So I think reframing it absolutely to what you're gaining as opposed to what your the perceived losses. But the other thing I think as well is to, it's okay to miss things that are bad for you. Mm. You know, when you give up smoking, I gave up smoking. I didn't give up smoking until like a year after I gave up drinking. I still miss smoking sometimes. Really? There's people, there's people who, <laughs> there's, there's people who are 20 years given up smoking and still miss smoking sometimes. So you're not doing it wrong if you, if you miss bits. Yeah. It wasn't all bad, otherwise you wouldn't have kept doing it for that long. There's going to be some good bits there. Abusive relationships have some good bits. It's the overall. And so you get more. You It gives you more. Sobriety gives you more than drinking ever gave you. Yeah. Yes. And I think something just sprang into my mind too, something just dropped in there where I thought, it's okay to change. Like you don't have to be the same person. I remember Victoria Vanstone and I were talking about this. She was saying that, you know, still trying to be the life of the party where it's, yeah. it's like it's it's okay to not be that person anymore because you will change. You Change is a good thing. Change is inevitable. Growth is a great thing because if we're not growing, we're dying or decaying. So yeah. being okay with changing and the relationships changing and just having some acceptance of that and yeah. but knowing that it absolutely will happen, particularly if you do some form of work on yourself. Absolutely. And I think the thing is, what happens is you get in tune with your authentic self. So like I was saying a moment ago about, you know, being in pub environments or being in like really crowded, boozy environments, or even if they're non-boozy environments, I've realized that's not my bag, baby. Like, I don't, I don't enjoy that. And I always thought that I did. 
um, and, you know, meaningless interaction with people for a long time, I that's not my bag. Like, I, I, I don't enjoy that. And it's also giving yourself permission, like Victoria. Oh, I love Victoria. Like Victoria I said, oh, she's great. Um, it's about giving yourself permission to go, well, actually, you know, it's okay. I remember having to say no to um, a friend's 40th quite early in sobriety. I was basically turning down most social um, invitations because I, I just couldn't do it. I was like, well, I'm going to go. Everyone else is going to be smashed. I'm going to be there through gritted teeth. I'm going to hate it. Why am I going? But I just felt so awful. Like I was letting mm. people down even more than I already was by being sober. And um, you just realise you have to start putting yourself first. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, and for, for a lot of us, it's probably the first time that we've ever done that in a healthy, not a selfish way. Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> so... So it's not about, well, the drink comes first and I'm going to do anything to party. It's about I've got to look after myself. If that means, unfortunately, I would love to come to your 40th, but I can't. I've got to look after myself. And it, in a way, it's like reparenting yourself. You're treating yourself like a small child. You, you, yeah. It is that inner child stuff. Yes. Yeah, just caring for yourself. Absolutely. Caring for putting yourself. yourself I'm all about the reparenting as well. Oh, God. Just- <laughs> Did you find, did you find when you did first did the, I found, oh, when I first did an inner child exercise, which was picturing yourself, holding yourself as a small child, um, you know, sort of two or three and cradling yourself. Oh, the tears. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. I did it with my group. Um, did you? Yeah, we did that a few weeks ago and we did a meditation. I led them through a meditation where they ended up holding their, themselves yeah. as a small child. Um yeah, and there was there was tears. <laughs> there was quite a few tears, and a lot of emotional stuff came up within that week for a lot of them. But it was a good. It was great. It was a good exercise, and yeah, it's a great I, one to do. It really is, and I think that's that's key. Is you have to start treating yourself like your own your own child in a way, or like you would a, a, a dear friend, or you know, your own child, like you'd want the best for yourself. You'd want to care for yourself. You'd want to, and for that, it's probably something we've never really done um, for, for a lot of us and it works. It does. <laughs> like just to look at yourself, like imagine you there as a small child and say, I love you. You're safe. You you are so precious. It's so, wow, it's so powerful. The, the safety thing, I think, is the having your own back because that was something I'd never really known a sense of safety. And yeah. to have my own back um, and to make decisions in my best interest, which I still fuck up on, you know, like mm. <laughs> I'm not perfect. This isn't a perfect linear process by any means. Mm. But for the majority of the time you are giving yourself that sense of safety and that sense of learning to trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yes. Mm. Oh, Faye, I could talk for you for hours. Oh, God. <laughs> I might have to get you back on again. The, you can't shut me up at the best of times. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Trust me. Yeah. So if you could go back and talk to 14-year-old Faye Lawrence, what would you say to her? Oh, God. It's not your fault. I think for decades I turned what had happened in my life as a tool to hurt myself with because I thought it was me. I thought I was somehow defective. I thought I wasn't worthy of love. I thought 
you know, and I still struggle with some of these things. I mean, it's getting sober isn't a magic bullet. That's when the that's when the work starts, unfortunately. <laughs> mm, yeah. There's no getting around it. There's no circumventing it. So 14-year-old me, I would say it's it's not your fault and, and you're gonna be okay. Yeah. You're yeah. gonna be okay. Yep. Would you change anything? <sighs> I don't think so. Yeah. Everyone says that. I don't think so. I mean, I've been through a lot in my life. I will one day write a book because it, it's kind of unbelievable. <laughs> but I've been through a lot. I've been experienced a lot of adversity and it does make you the person you are today. And that's why you're able to have compassion and empathy towards others because you know what it's like to experience a lot of these things. And, you know, people are worthy of love, including yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you say to someone who was sober curious and thinking, okay, I'm going to give this a go? What would be one key piece of advice you'd give those people? Oh, I know that's hard because there's so, so many things. It's so difficult because it's it's also so different for, for, for everyone in terms of their motivations and those sorts of things. But I would say do it. It's a game changer. If you want to have a better relationship with yourself and – you want to live your best life which sounds cliche just do it do it with a sense of curiosity it doesn't have to be a forever thing even if you take a three-month break do Danny's program whatever you want to do and see how you feel see how you feel see what see what improves to you in your life because most people I know that get sober their life improves greatly yeah would you say your life has improved greatly yeah I would in terms of the things that I've managed to achieve over the last three and a half years, things that I've done that I never in a million years thought I'd be capable of doing, a podcast. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good at it. <laughs> well, I, I never thought I could do, I mean, I, I never thought I could start a charity. I never thought I was do public speaking. I never thought I could be on TV. I never thought I could, so many things that I've done, jump out of a plane and, show up in the world is who I am without without any um lubricant or you know numbing um dealing with a lot of the things that I've had to deal with I never thought I could do any of these things buying my first ever property by myself um you know all these sorts of things and I've done them and it you grow you grow you grow through this discomfort through these bursts through these you know getting outside of your comfort zone that's where the gold is and if you allow yourself to have a break from alcohol, that's where you are more drawn towards those things. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God, I love you. You're so amazing. <laughs> Faye oh, Lawrence, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And, oh, again, if people want to reach out to you, I'll put everything available of how they can contact you on the show notes. And also if people would like to join one of your groups, sober, sober groups through Untoxicated, yep. they can um, just reach out to you through Instagram or the website. Yeah, I'll just go to the website, www.untoxicated, not intoxicated, untoxicated.com.au <laughs> um, or come and join our Facebook group, um, which is Untoxicated Support Group. And um, you'll find all the info in all those places. Oh my god! And you should totally start a sober, sober uh, dating site. Oh god! Honestly, we do get we've had quite a few requests for it. Call it Sober Shags. <laughs> <laughs> so-
for shucks. That's hilarious. Probably wouldn't go so well. <laughs> uh, no, I think it probably would, actually. I, I honestly think if there is a tech developer listening to this, get onto it, a sober dating app. We get requests all the time. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people out there who definitely want to date people who aren't big drinkers, even if they're just sober, curious, mindful drinkers, whatever. Definitely a market for it. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Faye, you're a legend. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on, Danny, and I hope your um, time in Victoria goes okay. Thank Thanks. you so much. Bye. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.